Amen. Thanks, Jesse, for yeah, writing and sharing that song. That was on repeat on my phone uh, a few times this week and other times in the past, too. I just love how clearly that reminds us that our salvation is not dependent on work that we have done or are doing, but solely on the work that Christ has done. There's a real danger that comes when we start to believe that we have something other than sin to contribute to our salvation, right? Uh, Saved people, though, here's the tension. I I wanted Jesse to sing that song in light of the passage that we're going to look at today because we do stuff, right? And we're called to do stuff. We are supposed to be people who obey, Right? But we're called to obey as Christians. So, so uh, I'm really looking forward to wrestling together with Philippians chapter 2, 12 to 18 today. Saved people are called to do some things. We're called to obey. If you think about it, and kids, you know this. You kids that are here today, and those of us who have been kids before, we know this. That some of the most common motivations, one of the reasons that we obey oftentimes is to avoid punishment or to earn a reward, right? Those of you that like teach in a classroom, you do the same thing, right? You want obedience in the classroom, and sometimes to motivate that obedience, you need to threaten some kind of punishment or offer some kind of reward. So our obedience oftentimes looks like motivation from either avoiding a punishment or earning a reward. And in In fact, salvation, if you think about it, part of our salvation is avoiding punishment and earning a reward, right? So obedience has something to do with avoiding punishment and earning a reward, and our salvation also has something to do with avoiding a punishment that we deserve and instead earning a reward. So here's what we're going to wrestle with today. What's the connection between those things? What's the connection between obedience and salvation? There's some sort of connection. What's the connection? What's the connection between our work and God's work? There's some connection. What is that? That's some really big questions. And here's what this is not, okay? This is not Jeremy sharing everything he's learned about that topic. There's way more that could be said. There's way more that I still need to learn. This is just an expository sermon on Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. That is going to be really helpful in giving us some insight into the answers to those questions. But that's not the sole purpose that Paul wrote, that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write every word there in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. We're just in a series in the book of Philippians, uh, and, and we want to see this passage in its context. So if you're able to, our custom as we gather together is that when God's word is read, we stand. And so if you're able to do that, would you please stand? And uh, just before I read God's Word, let me pray. Father, uh, thank you for work that you've already done while we've been gathered. And we anticipate more work still needs to be done in us. And I pray that you would help our minds and hearts to be attentive and, and, and directed towards Jesus so that the work that your Holy Spirit intends to do through the preaching of your Word and the reading of your Word right now would be accomplished for our good, for the good of others, and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God's Word from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. You can be seated. All right, let's work our way through this. And it's going to feel slow at the beginning. And that's okay. We're going to go through the last verses more quickly. Spend most of our time right here uh, on verses 12 and 13. It begins with the word therefore, and he says, therefore my beloved. Remember, Paul loves the church in Philippi. He's been with them. It's been about 10 years now, but he loves them. And so he's addressing them as somebody who's now a prisoner in Rome, far away from them, but somebody who loves them. He calls them beloved, and he starts this passage, right? This is all one letter, and it begins here with the word therefore. Okay? So the therefore reminds us that we need to look back and see that what he's going to write here is connected with what he's already said before that. So what's the therefore? Therefore, let's check it out. He says, therefore, my beloved. So what he's about to say has something to do with what we saw in verses 9 through 11. And remember, that's what we ended last week with. In verses 9 through 11, we get this picture of the Father who has exalted Jesus as Lord so that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved. Okay, so it's connected to that. But if you remember, verse 9 begins with a word. Do you remember what verse 9, the word verse 9 begins with? Therefore. Right? So, so, so there's also something we need to look at before that. And what happens before that in verse 8, it talks about how Jesus has humbled himself and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So before the Father exalts the Son, the Son humbles himself and becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? And Paul is sharing that Because his desire is for the church to be so shaped by the gospel, the way he says it in chapter 1, verse 27, is that they are to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's the kind of life that he tells them, you're not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. And he emphasizes again and again, unity and humility. Right? And as he wants the church, the church is supposed to be unified, together on mission. The church is supposed to be humble and obedient And as he's trying to encourage them to be humble and obedient and unified, he can think of no better example than Jesus. So that's why he shares this example of Jesus who, in his incarnation and the crucifixion, humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every other name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, therefore my beloved. Right? So it's all connected. See that? Therefore, he says, my beloved. And then we get into... This part that makes us feel a little bit like, what? Uh, I'm not sure how to take that. Here's what it says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Okay? So he's just recalling that while he was with them, in the short time he was with them, these people whose lives had been transformed by the gospel, they did a pretty good job of obeying God. Not every church is like that. Even you heard me read 1 Corinthians 11 as we took communion this morning. The church in Corinth didn't do a great job all the time of obeying God. The church in Philippi, he's generally very affirming and encouraging. You always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. He's been gone for 10 or so years now, and he's grateful to hear the report that they continue to obey, even though he's far away. It's kind of different. Remember uh, Moses in the Old Testament? Remember when Moses leads, leads God's people, but then he leaves them for a time to go meet with God on Mount Sinai? Do they continue to obey when Moses is away? No, they come back, and, and he comes back, and what are they doing? They melted their rings and stuff and made a golden calf to worship, right? But, but it's not like that in Philippi, right? In Philippi, Paul says, when I was there, you were obeying, and, and now that I've been away, you're still obeying. Good job, church, right? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. And then here's the tricky part. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You feel the tension there? Do you feel that a little bit? Like it's talking about God's work and it's talking about our work. There's some connection between work and salvation. It even says we are to work out, it says the church in Philippi there, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, But then it also says, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How do we understand that? Well, I think one kind of uh, theological concept that maybe would be helpful here is this idea of what is often called like the already and the not yet. Okay? You've heard of that before, maybe this, this already and not yet. As believers... We have already experienced the conversion part of our salvation, right? If you are in Christ, if you trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you've been converted. We've already experienced that part. We have been fully justified, declared righteous by God. The moment that we're saved, we are born again through faith in Jesus, right? So that's something we've already experienced. But the consummation of our salvation comes at the return of Jesus. So, so, so we are already finally, surely saved, but the consummation of our salvation comes at the return of Jesus. And in the meantime, what do we do? Well, here Paul is saying we work out our salvation by living lives of obedience. I was trying to think of, okay, is there a way that I could say this that would maybe help, help it make sense? No, no analogy works out perfectly. So I know there's going to be holes in this, but maybe this helps. Okay? Let's just say that dad writes an irrevocable trust. I had to look that up on Google to see what that was. You can do it later. Dad writes an irrevocable trust saying that he is going to give the family farm to the son when the son turns 25. At the time that the dad writes this, the son is only two years old, and he has done absolutely no work on the farm yet. But knowing that the farm is, in a sense, his already, and will one day be his more completely, right? The son goes through middle school and high school and young adulthood laboring on the farm. 
Now, he's not laboring on the farm in order to earn the farm. The farm's already his, right? But one day, it will be more fully his. And in the meantime, he's going to pour himself out doing the work, running the operation of the farm, working long hours for and with his dad. Again, it's an imperfect analogy, but maybe something that's a little bit helpful. See, the salvation of the members of the church in Philippi is a sure thing. It's irrevocable. It's already theirs in Christ. Paul is so confident of the work that God is doing. Remember, he started out the letter in chapter 1, verse 6. Remember what he said there? I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Right? God who began a good work in them is faithful to complete it. Now, notice this. I think if you look at verses 12 and 13, it says, work out your own salvation. And then it says in verse 13, who God, God who works in you. So salvation, it's kind of like what's happening is they're working out that which God has already worked in them, right? So God has done this work in them and they're working out the work that God has done in them. And then he's telling them how to go about doing that too. He says to do it with what? Fear and trembling. N- not, not a fear and trembling caused because they're never sure if they've done enough in order to be saved, right? That's not why they're fearful and trembling because I, I don't know, like, have I done enough in order to be saved? No, fear and trembling, because I think there's a recognition that the whole work of salvation from beginning to end is done by a holy, righteous, glorious, consuming God. That the God who spoke galaxies into existence and who will one day come to judge is at work saving us and at work in us. And the other thing I think we need to notice about this, because we get so tied up in that part of like, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you. So that gets all of our attention. But we can't miss the end of verse 13. Because the end of verse 13 is beautiful. It says this, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Church, the work that God is doing in us, the work that He has done to save us, and the work that He continues to do to sanctify us, listen, He's not doing that work begrudgingly. The work he is doing is that work that gives him pleasure. Right? It pleases God to save sinners like you and me. Some of you just need to hear that again and again and again. Because you look at yourself and you just think, man, God must be so frustrated with me. Some of you came here today beat up, ashamed, always dealing with insecurity, anxiety. My hope is that you would walk out of here with fear and trembling, not caused by shame or fear or insecurity or anxiety or anything like that, but that you would walk out of here with fear and trembling because you recognize again that, listen, God is pleased to save sinners like us. Right? He is pleased to save sinners. The work that God is doing, He's not doing it while shaking His head in disappointment, thinking, when are they ever going to get it together? He is, it is His will to work in us in a way that is pleasurable to Him, that gives Him good pleasure. Right? This is, God, God loves to save sinners. Okay? God loves to save sinners. 
And there's still, yes, this question, does God work or do we work? Okay, if that's the big question, does God work or do we work? The answer, yep, right? Does God, does God work or do we work? Yes. Now, the song that Jesse just sang, that's true. Uh, and I love his distinction that he made when he was talking about the, the deadly doing, the adjective that comes before doing, right? That, that there is a kind of doing that leads to death. If our doing is done in such a way that we're doing stuff in order to avoid God's punishment or earn God's favor, it's deadly doing. And that is what we need to lay down because Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Adam failed to obey in the garden And ever since then, we are sinners by nature and by choice. That's who we are, what we do. But Jesus is the second Adam, or the true and better Adam, the one who was tempted in the wilderness and in many other places, yet he was without sin. Jesus obeyed completely. He was perfectly righteous. And the good news of the gospel is that the perfect obedience and righteousness of Jesus is given to or imputed to all of us who by nature are sinners and don't deserve to stand in God's presence as righteous, but were justified or declared righteous through faith in Jesus because of the work that he has done. That's the good news. And God's plan is for our doing. So are we going to do stuff? Yes, we're going to do stuff. But we're not doing stuff to earn God's favor or to avoid God's punishment. We're doing stuff motivated by what God has already done. Because of the work that He's done in us, we are working. We're obeying motivated by the work that God has done. I think that word there, where is it? Verse 13? Yeah, the first word in verse 13, at least in the ESV, is the word for. That's a really important work. word. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for. Okay? Why is it? What, what is it that's motivating our working out our salvation with fear and trembling? It's the fact that God is at work in us. For God is at work in you. So we're motivated to obey by the work that God has done and is doing. And we're also empowered to obey because of the work that God continues to do. So, Quick example, Uh, a number of you, like me, are married, and God commands me as a husband to love my wife. The good news is, I will not be saved or not saved based on whether or not I obey that command. God has already saved me, and my failure to sometimes love my wife the way that I should reminds me of the very good news that Jesus has paid for all of my sin. But it's also that very work that God does in me that motivates me to obey that command to love my wife, as, Jesus, as it says in Ephesians, as Jesus loves the church and gave himself up for her. Right? So it's the work that Jesus has already done that motivates me to obey what he's commanded me to do. God's work for me motivates me to obey God and love my wife. And God's continued work in me by his Holy Spirit is what empowers me to do that. We just sang last week the line from one song saying, the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Right? 
we're not just motivated, we're also empowered by God to do the things that God has called us to do. So, Christian obedience is both God's work and my work. God has done the work, all of it, everything necessary for my salvation, yet he continues to work in me both to motivate and empower me to live a life of obedience as I work out my salvation. Maybe you're like, all right, uh, I didn't pay attention to any of that because you lost me. Uh, that's, that's fine. Uh, again, my goal was not to like, make sure I totally answer that, that tension and that question. That's going to be a tension that we feel, I think, for a long time. This tension between God's work and my work. In the end, I want us to delight in the fact that God saves sinners. Not based on our work, but on the work that Christ has accomplished for us. All right. Then he's going to flesh out a little bit more of what this obedience looks like in verses 14 to 18. I I see two things really in verses 14 to 18 that he's especially calling us to. The first is that Christians are to stand out. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. I think Paul here is probably alluding back again to the Old Testament. You remember in the Old Testament after uh, Moses and, and the rest of God's people were released from slavery in Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Remember what they spent a lot of that time doing? grumbling, right? Just grumbling, disputing. They, like, they, God had just rescued them and saved them, yet they spent a lot of their time grumbling and disputing. Paul is saying, let's not be like that. That's not who we are. We are children of God. God is doing this work of making us to be blameless and innocent, right? This is a work that God is doing in us. So let's not be the kind of people who endlessly grumble and dispute about all sorts of things. We are children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's the other thing he's reminding them of. Listen, if your goal there in Philippi is to blend in with all of the people around you, that's not my goal, Right? You're not there to blend in with people. That's not who you really are. You are now a child of God, blameless, innocent, without blemish. You are to live a different way. And in fact, what it's going to look like is you're going to shine as a bright light in that dark world, right? In this generation that's twisted and corrupted in so many ways, when we, when we live obedient lives, we're going to stand out. We're going to shine like lights. That's what he tells them, right? Shining as lights in the world. And how do they do that? By holding fast to the word of life. There's something that is grounding them. They're holding fast to the word of life. They're not kind of shifting and being blown away by all the different kind of changes in the culture around them. So a quick point of application Church, we have an opportunity in our culture, don't we? We have an opportunity in our culture. As we've mentioned, today is our nation's birthday, and it is right for us to be grateful to live in this nation at this time in history, recognizing it's by God's providence that we live in this place at this time. And acknowledging, it's right to acknowledge that many people 
have made many sacrifices for us to, to be in a place in our nation. Our nation wasn't always like this, but we're at a place where we are experiencing a lot of most of our lives. For most of us, most of our lives, we've experienced peace, security, and prosperity that most people in the world have never even had a chance to experience. Here's the side effect of that, though. The side effect of all of that peace, security, and economic prosperity that we experience as a nation, the side effect is this. We start to feel like we're entitled, like we deserve the best. Like a spoiled, rotten kid who complains a lot and gets grumpy when they don't get what they want because they're used to always getting what they want, right? So, so we in our culture, even though we are blessed with so many things materially and so much peace and security, we're often grumbling and disputing, right? That could probably pretty well define our culture living at a time where there's a lot of entitlement. Naturally, even just our own sinful self, regardless of where we live. <laughs> I mean, okay, you got to promise me you're not going to elbow somebody by you or even look at them. Look straight at me. Don't look at the other people in your row. But is it true that we are naturally kind of grumpy, thankless, argumentative, whiny people? Don't look at anybody else, right? Right? Grumpy, thankless, argumentative, whiny people. That, that's often how you could describe us, Right? And so for Paul to say to the church, listen, you, I want you to shine as lights in this world. Don't be grumbling and disputing. In a world where everybody's kind of off doing their own thing, in a world where the definitions of right and wrong get all messed up, people don't even know in our culture anymore what's good and what's bad, what's moral and immoral. We're super confused about those things. But let's be the people that hold fast to the word of life. Like, no, it's not, it's not kind of like defined by whatever like the popular opinion around us is. What's good and bad, what's right and wrong, what's moral and immoral, that's defined by God's word. And so we're going to be people that are united together as we hold fast to the word of life. And in that way, we will brightly stand out, shining as lights in our world. All right, and then the second thing that I think we see, the second and final thing I think we see in this passage is pouring out. So Christians stand out and Christians pour out. Paul shares kind of at the end here a bit of his personal testimony, and I think he stands as a great example to the church in Philippi. Read the end of verse 16. Here's what it says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. See, Paul, if you, if you remember just kind of Paul's biography, he has, in every town he's gone to, poured out his life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes, it's ended with beating, suffering, imprisonment, that kind of thing. But Paul is saying, like, I want to get to the end. I want to get to the finish line. And I want to be able to look back and say, all of that was not in vain. Like all of that, all of that that I had done, all of my labor, all of my running wasn't in vain. Like a parent who stands proud at their child's graduation saying, man, that was a lot of work, but look at this. They made it. That's what Paul wants. He wants to look back at the churches and say, man, I bored myself out, but look at those people. I'm so proud of you. That's what Paul wants to say to the church there in Philippi. And he's 
willing to be poured out for that purpose. Look at verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Again, using some Old Testament language about just this kind of like pouring out. I'm giving myself up for the sake of the church. And he's not, just like Jesus, just like Jesus doesn't save sinners begrudgingly, Paul's not pouring himself out in a whiny kind of way. Notice what he says here. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul has called them to suffer together on gospel mission, to be unified, to be humble, and to be obedient. And he's lifted up very clearly Jesus as the prime example of this. You want to know what it looks like to to live a life of sacrificial, joyful, humble obedience, you look to Jesus. And Paul's clear about that. But Paul is a follower of Jesus, and God is doing a work in him, and I would say that Paul is also a pretty good example of this. Not as good as Jesus, right? But isn't Paul a great example of sacrificial, joyful, humble obedience? Remember that Paul is not writing to the, like, Paul hasn't recently retired, and he's just like, ah, i got some correspondence to keep up on. And he's not like sitting on a deck overlooking the beach, sipping on ice tree, wearing a palm tree shirt and flip-flops. That's not where he's writing this from, right? He is writing this from prison in Rome. He's a couple years away from being executed. He doesn't know that yet, but he is. He's a couple years away from being executed. And he is spending the remaining days of his life, a man who has endured persecution, beating and imprisonment, along with shipwreck and some personal torment that we don't know too much about. He's now writing as a prisoner in Rome, and he's telling them, I'm going to pour myself out for you. And you know what? That makes me happy. I'm glad and I rejoice. You should be glad and rejoice too. Right? I love the way he says it in Colossians chapter 1. When I had a desk that had a thing in front of me, I had this posted up so I could see it over and over again. I still didn't memorize it. But Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 27, says this, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Listen to this. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling. No, no, like, you get it? It's not easy for Paul to pour himself out for the good of other people who don't often cooperate, right? For this I toil, struggling, but notice what he says, with all his energy. Paul's not just like tapping into his own well and hoping like I've got enough in there to pour out. No, he's toiling, he's struggling because he's tapped into the well of living water, Jesus himself, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Is Paul working? Yes. Is God working? Yes. Right? The reason that Paul can pour himself out for the good of the church and the glory of God is because God continues to work in Paul. For Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he's not asking for their sympathy as he pours his life out. He's asking them, I'm happy and I'm rejoicing. You want to do that with me? That's what Christians do. We joyfully pour ourselves out for the good of others and the glory of God. 
Or maybe I should put that in question form for an application point. Does that describe your life? Are we joyfully pouring ourselves out for the good of others and the glory of God? Yesterday, I got to run in the Riverbend Rally 5K along with uh, two of our kids. And, and some of you uh, run as well. Others of you think, that's just silly. <laughs> Why would you do that, right? Um, I'll admit, as a runner, running is not always enjoyable. And the older I get, the more I fight through pain to press on, right? But one thing that many runners will tell you about is there's like this runner's high, right? That you get done after having, but you don't get there. Like there was people, and I'm thankful for the people, but there was people standing in the shade yesterday clapping for us as we went by. They don't get the runner's high, right? They just clap as we go by. It's the people that are on the course pouring themselves out, right? Sweating and wondering, can I really make it up that hill? And why do they put that at the end of the course, right? Like, can I, can I, can I do that? Am I going to make it? And then, and then it feels like, I'm not sure if I can. But then you get to the end and you can look back like, and all of a sudden you kind of got this, like, I got this, this feel. And man, you know, and for me, as a dad, I, I felt good at the end, but what was even more fun for me was to watch my two kids come across the finish line too, right? So, 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 so knowing that, hey, there's something good. At th- I mean, I got this, right? I got, I got this. Everybody got one of these things, right? Uh, I'm, I'm here. No, don't clap. I'm going to throw it away probably, to be honest with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it away because in the end, like this, this reward doesn't really mean much of anything to me, but there was something that gave me pleasure and joy in pouring myself out for those minutes during the 5K and then the extra joy of watching uh, people that I love do the same, right? I think that's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. This is what makes Paul happy. He's getting close to the finish line. Right? I'm, I'm almost there, and I've poured myself out. And you know what? I am totally spent, but I am happy, and I'm rejoicing. And I'm hoping that you do the same thing with me. That you as Christians there in Philippi, that you as Christians here in Iowa Falls, and a number of you visiting from somewhere, wherever you go back to, like, don't, don't be kind of like this, man, obeying is hard. Yeah, obeying is hard. It's hard work. But in the end, it's what brings joy. Right? Joyfully, humbly obeying our Savior, for the good of others and the glory of God. So Paul is calling the church there in Philippi to do just that. The church, with all its pain and hurt and struggles and anxieties and insecurities and all the stuff, right? People in Philippi are people like us. Church, naturally, we feel like grumbling and disputing. You know what's easy? blending in. You know what's hard? Standing out. You know what's easy? Giving up. You know what's hard? Holding fast. Right? You know what's easy? Grumbling and disputing. You know what's hard? Being glad and rejoicing. God is calling us to do hard work. Right? He's not calling us to do the easy thing. We do the easy thing quite naturally. We follow the path of least, you know what I'm saying, least resistance. Right? But God is calling us to do hard work. Hard work that we cannot do on our own. And hard work that can only be motivated as we look back and see the work that God has done for us. That we're not doing that hard work in order that God might accept us. In order that we might avoid His punishment or earn His favor. We've already enjoyed 
that, right? We will forever enjoy that, God's salvation done completely through the work of Jesus. But as we live in this life, we now work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's good news. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that we, uh, that we get to know you. I pray that uh, knowing that I, I don't know, I don't know where everybody here is at with you, so certainly there's, there's people here gathered together today that a lot of these things don't apply because maybe they've spent their whole lives trying to work it out, trying, trying to work for it. They, they thought all along that, that it was possible for them to work for their salvation. And they're wrestling today with this idea that everything they've tried hard to do isn't enough. God, I pray that, that you wouldn't comfort them yet. That you would help them to feel extremely uncomfortable. To the point that they, that they repent of all of their deadly doing. That they lay that down at the feet of Jesus. That they acknowledge that our work is insufficient to earn for us a salvation that only can be earned by the work of Jesus. And so, God, I thank you for the work of Christ. And I thank you for the work that you call us to. Thinking of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, where he told his beloved brothers there, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Think of what Paul wrote at the end of his life to Timothy when he wrote, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. And God, we want to say like Paul said there, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. God, help us to be a church who just longs for the appearing, the second coming of Jesus, that our salvation might be complete. Our salvation, which is already sure, might be consummated, might become complete at the return of Jesus. We long for that. And I pray that you would motivate us and empower us by the work that you have done that the work that you are doing and the work that you are yet to do to be people who obey. And I thank you that we can do that with confidence, not in ourselves, but in you. Not confidence in our own grip, on our own ability to always hold fast, but in your ability to hold us fast. We're grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if